My name is Edward Champion, and this is the Bat Segundo Show. Oh, that's, that's all like. He's the cook. Two broke girls is surely one of the most detestable cancers destroying the health of American culture today. Superman changed in a phone booth, not a stall that says, for a good time, call Max. It is a sitcom with an audience of eight million people. It is the only television show with a sizable mass audience that depicts the working lives of waitresses. And it does so through a hodgepodge of gormless jokes devoted to sexism, racism, relentless objectification of women. Here, for example, is a clip of a waiter being introduced to the two main characters, Max Black and Caroline Channing. They both work as waitresses in a Brooklyn restaurant. Oh, and you're both pretty. Look at Blondie. What have you had done? Oh, me? Nothing. CBS and the show's producers think so little of waitresses that during the 2013 Super Bowl, Max and Caroline appeared in a remarkably sexist commercial, stripping and writhing in their waitress costumes to Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar On Me, with the camera ogling tight on their breasts. Wait, why are we doing this again? It's for the Super Bowl. Oh, right. It's for the Super Bowl. In other words, hey there, men. Waitresses are all too happy to objectify themselves while you fill your fat, middle-aged bellies with potato chips, beer, and bitter regrets. Finger basket? Is that another nickname of yours? Two Broke Girls doesn't just reinforce this objectified stereotype through images. No, but for one summer it could have been. Oh, no. It also does so with the two waitresses blurting out these hacky quips, constantly referring to their sexuality. Are you trying to hurt me or turn me on? Now, Kat Dennings plays Max, and Two Broke Girls goes well out of its way to play up her ample anatomy. I passed! I got a B! No, my grade matches your boobs! In doing research for this introduction, I noticed that there were all these YouTube montages. Some guys essentially edited together the best clips of her boobs. And if you do a YouTube search, you can actually find a video called Cat Dennings Cleavage in Two Broke Girls. It has received 433,254 views. Other YouTube montage draws include Two Broke Girls, Cat Dennings, Max Black, Huge Cleavage, and Two Broke Girls, Cat Dennings, Max Black, 30H Boobs. Max, I think I'm in a three-way. <laughs> well, you look exactly the way I imagined you'd look in a three-way. Reading. Two Broke Girls is all too happy to perpetuate a sexist fantasy and an outright myth. The show's writers are very much in denial about what a life waiting tables involves. They have no understanding of the backbreaking physical labor required, the financial difficulties, the second jobs, the debasing task of remaining in a constant state of humility to boorish assholes. The writers seem to think that waitresses have all this spare time to hang out in the back of a restaurant when all the tables are filled outside. Now, I'm sure defenders of the show will point to the ongoing plot line of Max and Caroline trying to start up a cupcake business, but their smarts and their business acumen are just never enough because it must constantly be compared to how they look or what they do in bed. This is a disservice to the 2.4 million waiters and waitresses who are now working in America. It is a narrative that needs to be challenged and protested and stopped. That's lame. If you like a girl, you should just grab her and kiss her. Okay. 
Unfortunately, Merritt Tierce has written a lively and fierce debut novel called Love Me Back. It tells the story of a young waitress named Marie who has difficulty balancing her job and her life, caring for her daughter. She must endure the constant customers, mean bosses, other waiters on the make. Now, Love Me Back may not have a laugh track, but it's a novel that has the boldness and the decency to tell the truth about struggling in a precarious economy. It has the courage that two broke girls couldn't muster, even if some psychotic maniac held a loaded gun to Whitney Cummings' cowardly, compromising, and corporate head. I was very fortunate to speak with the magnificent Merit Tears during a recent trip she made to New York. So I'm here with Merritt Tierce, who is most recently the author of Love Me Back. Merritt, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Merritt. Before we get into what this novel has to say about class, uh, about uh, self-abuse, and about being a woman, I'd like to get into the American novel's often neglected history uh, about people who work in restaurants. Uh, I think of James M. Cain's Mildred Pierce, and I figured you were familiar with that given the cognates in your name. <laughs> and uh, I also think about uh, uh, Sturdivant Ann's Last Night at the Lobster. I think about Mimi Pond's graphic novel, Over Easy, which is somewhere between uh, a memoir and fiction. Uh, you know, to what extent was your novel a response to this often neglected form of novel? And given that there are an estimated 2.5 million waiters and waitresses in this country, why do you think that this very real life has been so underrepresented in literature? That's a great question. And um, I'm really impressed at that uh, list that you just provided because a lot of people have asked me, you know, why haven't I read anything about restaurant life? And um, I'm, I am familiar with Mildred Pierce only because of the HBO miniseries oh, the with Haynes, Kate Winslet, yeah, yeah. and um, it's fantastic. And and her, has a, has a great dramatization of restaurant life yes, as well. Yes, yeah. yes, it does. And um, she has. There are some similar themes at work, I think, in Mildred Pierce and in, in my book. Um, and uh, I'm also glad to hear that number, 2.5 million, because it seems like so many people have worked in restaurants or even in some other form of retail customer service. And That's just waiters and waitresses, and I pulled that from the Bureau of Labor Statistics because I really wanted to know that Okay, too. cool. Yeah. 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 And um, so it's something that so many people are familiar with, and I'm surprised there's not more writing yeah. about it. But one of my theories is that... Um, it's really hard work, and a lot of times it's just you know a means to whatever real end you're going for in your life. Um, and I say quote unquote real because I don't want to diminish you know anyone's work in restaurants. Um, I worked in restaurants for uh, 15 years, and it was very much my real life. When did you stop working at restaurants? I know that the news stories from the South Bio says that you were working in a high-end steakhouse mm -hmm. at that time, and I was curious about when that tapered off. Yeah, I was, and it tapered off um, about two and a half years ago, so okay. it's fairly recent. I mean, it's so recent that I still frequently wake up and... You, you know, have a moment where I'm grateful that I don't have to go work in a restaurant tonight. Like, wow. what, yeah. What kept you in that? And it seems to me there's a kind of almost addictive impulse to it uh, that you tap in very well in this novel. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I I couldn't make more money doing anything else. Yeah. So there was that reality. And I have um, two kids and I've had them, you know, since I was very yes. young myself. So it was hard for me to simultaneously, um, y- you know, make a living and try to get advanced in any other arena of life. Um, and I think that is why a lot of artists especially keep working in restaurants because um, you have some flexibility and you have – uh, you know, a steady cash income usually, uh, which is enough to keep you going, but then you do get caught in it and it's hard to get out. And that goes back to what I think about um, why it's not written about more is because when you do break out of it, you're like, it's such a relief. You don't want to think about it one more second of yeah. your life, you know, especially not to write. Well, I think what it is is it's this kind, and I've I had a stint working in restaurants a long time ago. But it's this kind of uh, illusion that you're free because oh, I can always drop the job if I actually get a gig, uh, and then you go get caught up in a similar cycle that has no job security whatsoever. And it's just I guess there's so much shame attached that we don't want to analyze it, whether it be in literature or even in life or even in just regular conversation. Right. Yeah. I mean, and you know that's an unfortunate reality of life in particular in. America, I think, is that uh, the service industry is so condescended to and looked yeah. down on. You know, it's not uh, it's not thought of as like worthwhile work. Or if it is, it's some sort of, I guess, uh, vibrant, effervescent comedy or something, as right. opposed to the realities of the darkness, the physicality, which you get into very right. well in this book. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, well, we don't actually learn uh, Marie's name until a few chapters in, and this seems to reflect this regrettable cultural tendency in which customers, even the most progressive-minded ones, will often go into a restaurant and not even remember the name or not even see anything of the waiter or the waitress uh, other than a sort of physical blur. Um, and that opening section where it's just this extraordinary uh, uh, sense of physical uh, seizure is, is, is astonishing. But throughout the book, there's a lot of physicality. Um, and we become very aware of the physical presence of the waitstaff in this book through much of the sexualized scenes and so forth. I think of also, however, Tanya's thumb resembling soggy bread. <laughs> you have the warm, buttery smell of Carl's neck. These characters, they all seem to physically blend into the restaurants. And not even the seemingly protective plush leather of the check presenter is safe. There's that credit card scene Mm -hmm. where it actually gets lodged into the restaurant. And I'm wondering, you know, what is it about the physical allure or the pool of a restaurant? I mean, this seems to me just as much of a part of it in in both your novel and in life. Uh, It's kind of... This this vortex in, mm-hmm. in a certain degree, and I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering how you how you arrived at that, or if you arrived at that, or what physicality really means when both waiter, waitress, or waitress and customer go to a restaurant. Right. Well, it it is um, such a basic act, eating and yeah. bringing someone food, and it is like the most the most basic maintenance of the physical. So there's that kind of. Um, level to it. But I also just as a writer, I'm most interested in um, the sensual in, you know, whatever details there are to be observed in a situation, the sensate ones are the most important to me. Mm -hmm. And a restaurant is just, I think, you know, more uh, fertile territory for that than a lot of settings because of 
the food and the smells and the sounds and the you know the people the touching the everything of it so do you feel that uh, much of the sex in this book came out of i mean how where did this come from did this come out of a sort of an investigation of the restaurant as physical consumptive space uh, or i mean not just from experience I, I mean it just seems to become more of this great kind of uh uh just pull on all the characters, mm-hmm. not just Marie. Uh, although in Marie's case, it becomes just utterly painful mm-hmm. to read and to see what she's going through. I, I mean, you know, uh, was was sense of space one of the ways that you were able to triangulate her pain and the way that she dealt with it uh, in her life as she gets dragged further into this trajectory? Uh, well, I wish I was smart enough to have been that deliberate about it, but it, what, it well, was it's, just... instinctively, a, how did it go? Yeah, yeah. instinctively, it just was... Um, an element of restaurant culture that I do know from experience to be ubiquitous and to be just a, a part of the after hours life of a restaurant and the people who work there. And, you know, I I honestly don't have a great answer for why that is or what the connection is. But um, I think it has partly to do with just appetites, with trying to satisfy other people's appetites and putting yourself completely at the service of other people and then needing to get that back in some way after, you know, to convince yourself that you still exist by satisfying some of your own appetites after it's over. Being in service to other appetites creates a veracity of your own that mm-hmm. is impossible to to, to actually appease. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. There are a few moments throughout Love Me Back where Marie subjects herself to self-harm, to cutting the fondue skewer while her daughter is watching the Cosby show. Cutting is typically associated with high school girls, at least uh, that's how we look at it in society. But as we come to know more of Marie's backstory in the short and long alternating chapters, I mean, we become very aware that Marie's life has been thrown into this degrading trajectory because, well, she's been thrown into the wilderness without a handbook. And I think you get at very well how when we essentially abandon kids or teenagers and throw them into the world, uh, there are these lingering things. I mean, Marie has to learn much of this at the behest of other men. And I'm and I, i I'm wondering, do restaurants contribute in any way to being in denial about uh, throwing our kids into really terrible lives like this? And can fiction provide an adequate response to getting people to understand uh, these uh, gruesome but important truths? Maybe. I mean, I, I hope so. I don't know. I, um, I don't want my daughter to work in a restaurant anytime soon. Um, Did she I, ever actually said when you were working in restaurants, I want to work at a restaurant just as like Marie at all? I'm just out of curiosity. Uh, yeah, but I mean, both my kids yeah, have said yeah. that when they were little, you know, yeah. and it, it made my heart sink. Yeah. But I, at the same time, I have to say that working in restaurants has given me some values and basic skills in life that I... Um, that I need and really treasure and I wouldn't give them back for anything. Such as what exactly? Such as um, just being aware of other people. I mean, when you're forced to put other people's needs and desires ahead of your own, no matter how you feel about them, it's hard to kick that habit. And I'm not saying it makes you an altruistic person. I'm just saying that even on a physical level, when you're walking down the street, you have a different way of moving. You're not oblivious to people because 
of, you know, working in restaurants. And you learn to, as Marie says, anticipate and to consolidate. And those are useful skills for life, you know. Um, and you learn to work really hard. And that alone is useful, I think. Um, and now I've forgotten what your question was. Well, we had we had a magical, massive question of mine, uh, which I'm implying magic, where it was probably just prolixness on my part. But uh, essentially, I was asking about uh, what is it about restaurants that cause uh, our kids to be subjected into this vortex? I mean, you know, we were talking about uh, the notion of of all these all these of basically throwing our kids into situations where they're ill prepared for, and restaurants almost pick it up where colleges or institutions or libraries or other things, uh, which could in fact help them and prepare them more adequately. I mean, what is it about such a, that's all, it's almost like, you know, basically having soldiers go into war to a certain degree. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's sort of inevitable because, um, especially now it seems harder and harder for young people to get meaningful work, to get any job at all. And people will always need to eat. So restaurant work will always be available. And, um, you know, if that's, the only place you can launch yourself from, then, you know, that's, I think, our fault for not making more meaningful work more available and um, not making college, for example, more affordable. I mean, and I say that as someone who's still paying down student loans myself and has basically no money saved for college for any of the three children who live in my house. And that's, you know... I value education more than almost anything, but there are some real factors at work as to whether or not, you know, any given person can get a higher education. How does writing help you to come to grips with uh, these particular realities that are, you know, I think we all of us face at a certain degree? Well, writing helps me come to grips with all of reality just because I um, don't really know what I think or how I've gotten to what I think until I start writing about it, which I'm borrowing straight from Flannery O'Connor. I think that's something that she said, but it makes so much sense to me. That's just how my mind works, um, is I reveal myself to myself through writing. Yeah. I uh, I went back to Suck Me, uh, the as it first appeared. Suck it. Uh, suck it. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, we're really going down that. Uh, you did, yeah, did you? yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, that's uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's that's the greatest gaffe in, of of this year uh, for this show, and we're keeping it in. I went back to suck it uh, as it first appeared in this 2007 <laughs> issue of Southwest Review, and I compared it against the chapter in Love Me Back because I'm just geeky that way. And I wow. was I was quite surprised to see that aside from character and place names. Uh, and a few drop sentences, and there was this paragraph about a church lady who attended the Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, the prose was pretty much identical to how it first appeared uh, back in 2007. And I've talked with many writers who are sometimes parceling out their novels. They may not even know their novels when they're putting them out as stories, and they're fiddling around with this to all the way to the proof stage. And, I, and I'm wondering uh, why, y in this case, you're allowing something that is basically maybe six or seven years old by the time it actually gets to your editor to more or less stay uh, pretty much as it is uh, and, and why you're not tempted to fiddle with it further. Or is it a scenario where you, the, the emotional truth of that particular moment, you, you, you are absolutely compelled to keep it, that if you were to revise it further, it would impede with that. I, I was just really curious about that. 
Um, well, I'm really flattered that you geeked out on it that way. <laughs> I mean, um, but I think that... And I'm flattered that you got me to misquote <laughs> the actual chapter. <laughs> it's too bad this is audio only because your face is very red. So. Um, <laughs> your, your face is a bit red, too. So we're in this together. <laughs> I think... Um, I think Suck It is uh, remarkable among my stories because it did just come out, you know, like an alien that fell from space. And it mainly stayed intact through all those years. And it it was the first story, uh, the first full story I ever wrote and the first story I published. And it has carried me quite a long way. And... Um, it's holy text, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you were to mess with it, then the right. rabbis would come after you or whatnot. Yeah, but I did, you know, I went for several years without even reading it. And then when I was assembling the book, and I mean, I always knew it would be in there. But when I went back to read the whole thing, I did wonder if it would stand up, you know, because I had evolved, I thought, as a writer. And, and also because most of the rest of the book was not like that. It was heavily revised. And... Uh, I don't know. I just felt really good about Suck It. Um, So the changes that I made were really minor, and I felt like that, you know, was true to that story. Yeah. I mean, did you do this with pretty much all the other bits that were assembled into the the grand novel? And I'm curious how how this works. I'm very fascinated with how writers, uh, often without knowing uh, create novels from various scraps like this, and and uh, why there's this almost orthodoxy to it, it seems to many of these stories that you put out there before you even knew it was a book. When did you know it was a book? How did you know it was a book? Uh, I knew it was a book when my agent told me she'd sold it. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, <Okay>. like <laughs> um, until then. And actually, this sounds superstitious and silly, but I didn't, I didn't really let myself believe it was a book until you know um, two days ago when it was on shelves. In yeah. the world. And um, I mean, yeah, I wrote Suck It in 2006, 2007. Yeah. And um, then I just kept writing, not very quickly, other stories. And I had no intention of or knowledge that I was writing a book. Um, I didn't think of it that way. I just kept writing stories. And after I had written, you know, five or six stories that had the same narrator and a lot of the same characters in the same setting, um, someone else, actually a friend from graduate school uh, who's also a writer, Alexander Maxick, told me, you know, you this could be a book. And I thought, oh, I mean, it seems like it would have been obvious to me at that point. But I never, even at that point, I didn't think, oh, I'll make these into a novel or that's what I'm doing here. I just kept writing and I thought that I would have, you know, maybe a story collection that would be restaurant stories. Yeah. But that's not I mean it how it was sold. It was sold as a novel actually. Yeah. And uh it actually was just sold as a debut. I think my agent was really shrewd in putting it out there. It's a debut book. Yeah, it could be it, debut short yeah, story. It could be debut novel. If it was novels or is, short is, stories. Is, is so. this what writers have to do now? Because there's such a weird stigma on short story collections because you deal with issues of commerciality, um, a term I absolutely despise because I'm all about the art. Did you feel any pressure to like uh, uh, pull a Trojan horse here, or is that what your agent is for? <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, but I, I mean, I, like, I don't feel like I sold out because I actually love the interstitial pieces that I wrote yeah. as connective tissue for the novel. Those are like my favorite parts. 
uh, now when I go back and kind of, you know, I caress the book and read what I love, I always end up there. And so I feel like those are really essential to the story now. Um, so you you don't have any kind of hesitation about the text? You're happy to go back to this? You can accept that? That's an extraordinary amount of confidence for a young writer. Uh yeah, well, I, I mean, I... Some people are just like, oh, I can't read it. No, yeah. I, I okay, I do have that reaction at a certain point in my process, which is a term I hate, but um, yeah, so I, I'll write a story and then I'll revise it obsessively. I'll read it like 300 times until I basically have it memorized. And then um, there's, a, a, there's this like wave form to it where I get to where I think it's like, incredible and it's brilliant and I love it and then you know I've revised it so many times and read it so many times and I think I start to think this is shit I'm like completely delusional this is terrible and then I drop it and I don't think about it for a long time so you do have the vacillating to extremes oh, yeah. this is shit and I'm yeah. the greatest writer in the world okay right. okay yeah I do yeah of course I, th- I think I'm trying to understand this in relation to just how suck it <laughs> was able to sort of stay the same for from for so many years and and, and all this I mean do you anticipate uh, uh, kind of I guess, is this, do you think I mean you've been work you've been writing now for seven or eight years here do you anticipate uh, allowing stories to sit like that is do you work out the sentences when you're actually writing them so much that they're so final that you can't really uh, improve upon them any any more than you, you have it's the best you could have possibly done at the time well, I always think that it's the best I could have possibly done when I'm writing it. Um, and I I think I will probably never be prolific because I have the terrible habit of editing while I write. Yeah. Um, of, you know, rereading constantly just the three sentences that I've written and making them better before I move on, um, which is a very slow way to write. But... Um, I've found that even when I feel like a story is very stable and I've improved everything that could be improved about it, the next time I read it, there'll be one thing that I would change, one place where I've repeated you know, an adjective or where two sentences in a row have a similar structure that is kind of you know, clangs or something. So I think there's possibly no limit to how much a story can be refined. Yeah. I did notice that uh, you stripped the italics and you stripped the quotation marks and the commas and the punctuation. And there's this kind of really smooth flow, not just in this, but also in the fictionalized essay you wrote for Pank. Uh, You have this situation where you just go straight to a capital letter. And I'm wondering if, uh, if this is essentially your solution in both flow and also to appeal to the increasingly uh, uh, flimsy attention spans of those in the digital age and whether this is what we need to do to just get that paragraph just going whoosh. I mean, I'm wondering how this developed. Yeah, that's it, it wasn't a conscious thing. That was how Suck It was written. And um, it was written that way, I think, as a direct result of the interiority of sure. Marie's um, voice. And I felt like quotation marks or you know anything even a dash no even a, yeah, yeah would be distracting because i mean when i'm talking to you right now i don't see quotation marks when you transition from description to you know quoting dialogue or when you ask a question i I mean, I don't Whereas see I punctuation. See a, I see a big ellipsis from suck me to it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yes. that, there's, there is an indisputable punctuation <laughs> in the air on that little embarrassment. Yeah. 
Yeah, but you know, I guess I just I um, it feels artificial yeah. to me, and in, in a way, and it's hard for me to add anything artificial when I'm writing. So um, the capital letter being the only sign that you know now someone is speaking is my concession to needing that. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but I'm wondering. I mean, it's it's it actually works very well with uh, life waiting tables because. Uh, the everything there. I mean, you're you're very observant in terms of I can uh, I can save some time if I do this or I keep the cash register mm-hmm. open just a, just a quarter inch. And so there's a sense of time throughout this entire book that increasingly becomes more absorbed with Marie's. Um, uh, in, in many cases, regrettable sexual uh, affairs and so forth. And I and I'm wondering if this allowed you to broach. These, diffic- these difficulties where, you know, if you know you have flow, you can not only address the realities of time uh, waiting tables, but also the realities of expending time in, in really, in, in, especially in that last chapter, utterly terrible uh, situations. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's a reflection of, of um, how she's experiencing the world. You know, you don't, it, when you're living, you don't, you know, break up um, your life with uh, even, you know, chapters or headings or quotation marks, or it's just one thing to another. And I want to, I'm saying this after the fact, because I I honestly can't claim any intention whatsoever. But I feel like that is why I did that. Although I did have a professor at Iowa who told me he thought that it was a petty rebellion, um, Petty rebellion. Yes, those are his words. Uh, so, really? Yeah, not using quotation marks. And um, I am arrogant enough to just be like, whatever, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I guess he had had too many students who were doing that. Um, I, I, I want to get off the, the, the formalism and get into some of the crux of womanhood in this. Uh, there's one line in the book that saddened me quite deeply. Uh, and it comes after someone tells Marie that sex should be safe and pleasurable. It's this reply that she offers, uh, just as the narrator, but it wasn't about pleasure. It was about how some kinds of pain make fine antidotes to others. Uh, Leslie Jameson has written quite eloquently uh, about this in her essay, Grand Unified Theory of Female Pain. She brings up the ancient Greek philosopher Menander, who said, woman is a pain that never goes away. And she extrapolates this sinister possibility that being a woman requires being in pain. And in thinking about Marie, I've been asking myself, why is it that pain is this unshakable default state for her? To what extent is your fiction investigating the plight of the every woman? And is it safe to say the only lasting fiction portraying woman is occupied with Jameson's idea? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I'm known for that. <laughs> yeah, it is safe to say that because I think it is safe to say that until women are not second-class um, beings. And I think that uh, whatever form Marie's pain takes, so much of it is connected directly to the experiences that she has because she is a woman um, to, you know, the the betrayal of the body when, you know, it becomes pregnant when, you know, the 
the host is not ready for that or is not, you know, able to care for a child. And just the the fact that, as she says, it, it wasn't about pleasure, I think that, you know, heterosexual sex is so rarely about the woman's pleasure. Yeah. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the way it's set up, it's impossible for the, you know, the woman to experience much pleasure unless it is, uh, unless that is a focus, sure. you know. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that's true. I think there's a lot of inherent pain that goes with just being a woman and internalizing the idea that you are not worth as much as a man. And yeah. it comes at you in so many different forms that you experience incessantly. You know, they may not even be... Um, obvious to you at all. Yeah. Did you find that pain was really the best and possibly the only alternative to really get Maria live on the page? Uh, did you try to explore happiness? I mean, we have a little bit of that in Mexico in the uh, short little alternating chapters, but I'm wondering about that. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't try for happiness. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I feel like... Um, I want to be happy in my life as a person, but in storytelling, many times happiness is boring. Unfortunately, I think it takes great skill to write happiness in happy an interesting conflict. way. Yeah, and I, I'm not there yet. So, um, why, why do you think happiness uh, doesn't come to you on on the page? I'm curious. In terms of this conflict, why aren't you there yet? Um, I think that. Wow, I have no answer for that question. Um, Have you made attempts to be happy like that, or on the page? On the page, yeah. Or is it just it just it just go away your notion of realism and, and yeah? Experience? It just doesn't. It's not like I feel like I would never have the impulse to write about something that yeah. <laughs> something happy, and that's just maybe I don't know. Maybe I read too much Thomas Hardy when I was a kid, but it's like just a a basic element of what I want to read and what moves me. I mean, um, Edward P. Jones, for example, like nobody gets off happy ever. Um, and even if the pain is so slight, you can, you know, barely feel it. It's there. It's really there. And that's, um, that's what I love as a reader. Yeah. One thing that also struck me about Marie is how tiny she is in this book. Uh, she's almost epicene in her tininess. At one point she says, I could have been a boy except that my nipples were big and square. It's almost as if she has been marked from birth as someone who is almost a woman, not fully a woman. She says she doesn't feel female. She finds femininity shocking. She hasn't even seen another woman's breast until the moment with Tanya. And that is tied in with her being fired. So I- I'm wondering about... Uh, this notion of genderhood wrapped up in size uh, and and when this came about in constructing uh, Marie because uh, Suck It doesn't really uh, doesn't really specify this in its even in its early form or its later form and 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 I'm wondering um, you know how that size kind of presented itself and you know how it was attached to this notion of of gender and so forth well um, yeah I think that she she says as you said, she's almost a woman, not quite, but she's also almost a man. I mean, yeah. she, until a certain point in her life, 
she feels like gender has no impact on her. And it's really um, a really tough awakening for her that um, she will be discriminated against as a woman, even though she doesn't feel like a woman um, or, you know, she doesn't really relate to much of what traditionally constitutes, you know, femininity or womanhood. And um, and I also think that her size, her is, I mean, she's vulnerable as a person. She has a kind of a um, hard carapace of, you know, an outside, but um, she's very, she's a really strange mix of fragile and impermeable. And um, I think that she's also still a child in a lot of ways, especially at the beginning of the book. She's, um, you know, she's not finished developing as a person in any way. She's very fragile and mm-hmm. very, uh, I mean, almost a blank slate and uh, learns everything from, you know, orgasms to drugs to you name it. Um, I-, I wanted to bring up this really fascinating essay in the Los Angeles Review of Books that Victoria Patterson wrote. She pointed out how you subverted the male gaze into a female one by having Marie objectify men and discover what is pleasing to her. And the flip side of this is that even though Marie is making the choices, she's the one who is being degraded and humiliated here. Now, one can point to this as the inevitable result of a character living life involving self-abuse, or more interestingly conclude that the male gaze, even when it is appropriated by women, is damaging to women no matter where it comes from. Uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. Can the male gaze be taken back or nullified by appropriation in any way? Does fiction provide any answers to this? Well, um, I, I think that the male gaze resists nullification inherently, so I don't think that... Um, you know, Marie's appropriation of it does anything to dismantle it. I think that it's um, possibly another way of looking at how it's damaging um, and how it just, you know, I mean, I think that Marie, um, there's something to be, It's. I don't think that it's, you know, uh, bad or damaging to, observe the beauty of, you know, the physical form. I don't think that that is inherently flawed uh, as a practice. But I think that, you know, Marie has been taught to associate objectification with um, femaleness on such a basic level that there's no separating objectification of any kind from degradation. If, if it's a form of rebellion... It's still a trap, I, I, I suppose. Uh, would you say that's the case, possibly? Yeah, I think it is because, you know, she's uh, – it's such a contorted place she finds herself in where she is has this strange kind of power. But it's – in the end, you know, she still is is wounded by herself. So what power – do you think Marie ultimately has? I mean, we see this trajectory where she ends up working her way up to the high-end steakhouse, and she's finally making some money. But it seems that the trade-off for that is, well, everything that happens in that last chapter, which is so terrible. Um, 
you know, does she even have any options? And, and uh, is there really any empowerment to be found here? Or is this just something we really should just be honest about, that money is no panacea for being degraded like that? It's, it, it may not be worth the sacrifice. It may not be worth the, the compromise. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. I think that she she always has choices and, you know, she puts herself in the situations that she finds herself in and um How responsible is she though? She's completely responsible. I think that and I think she knows that and uh would never try to justify or excuse any of what she does. Yeah. And I think I think she's responsible for all of the bad decisions that she makes, and in a way, that's why she makes them, is to, um, you know, demonstrate her own agency by perverting it, in a way. And I don't know what that says about her decision-maker. It is, you know, uh, flawed. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Um, I wanted to uh, ask about uh, some of the biographical details that uh, you share with your characters. Um, I wouldn't ask so much about this, but there's this interesting ambiguity, uh, and and I want to provide some examples. Uh, First and foremost, Merritt and Marie. (laughs) But second, both of you worked in a high-end steakhouse. Both of you became single mothers. Uh, You also share much with Martine in your story, Solitaire, that was published in the fall 2014 issue of the Oxford American. Uh, In that story, I was struck by this painful moment of Martine opening the door to Mamadou as he is arriving to hear the news that she's pregnant. And Mamadou says, I should have worn a condom. Martine replies, hello, say hello, say hello, how are you now that you're pregnant? And this reminded me of the moment in your recent New York Times essay where you describe how you wanted this man you were with to love you or to publicly acknowledge the relationship. So this may go back to what we were discussing earlier about happiness, but I am wondering how imagination works for you. Do you feel that your stories have to be more rooted in direct experience than other writers so that you can stray from something that you've experienced? Uh, or how do you deal with potential fiction that you've never experienced? How important is your own reality to writing fiction? I think at this point in my writing life, it's it's vitally important. Yeah. And I expect it always will be, but I don't know that I'll always be writing so closely to it. I think that... Uh, that my experiences are where I have the most direct access to the sentences I want to write right now. And I, you know, who knows if I can write anything that's not, you know, um, thinly veiled autobiography. I mean, I don't know myself if I can do it. I mean, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it. I'm Mm -hmm. just curious how it works for you and why it works within this constantly revising the three sentences, why that? I mean, maybe maybe the sheer level of care you put to your sentences means that you have to be more uh, personal than perhaps other writers or draw from them personal more than other writers. Yeah, I think I am, um, as I said earlier, I think I'm trying to figure out what I think about my own experiences and life. And uh, so writing about them is the way I'm doing that. To go back to that New York Times essay, um, you point out that the problem with discussing abortion in our culture is that we protect the lie that abortion is not normal, that it still carries some stigma of shame or fear, and that the person who needs the abortion must, as you put it, grovel 
before the consciences of others. How can fiction rectify this tonal imbalance? Do you feel that there have been any significant advances in both reality and fiction in making abortion more normal? I mean, surely we need more Wendy Davises to filibuster draconian laws so that the rights of women eventually become something that everyone wishes to preserve. Surely we have to start with the extraordinary in order for us to get to the ordinary. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that we are, we are, at least in America, we are really behind uh, the other side with abortion right now. I think that a lot of great work is being done to change the conversation about abortion um, through organizations like the Sea Change Program and, um, you know, One in Three and All Above All. There are uh, some great groups working on this very issue to change the stigma about abortion and just to talk about it more. And then, you know, there's movies like Obvious Child, which everyone should see. It's incredible. Um, and so we're getting there, but we're so far behind that we have a long way to go, I think. And um, I do think that it's really important to just talk about abortion as if it is normal, because it is. And I'm really um, astounded that we've all managed to keep it so under wraps for so long. And, and if you talk to anyone, eventually you will find an abortion story of some way, either someone they knew or something they experienced. Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, why is, why is this such, a, such dirty laundry, do you think? It has to do with, I think, some really, um, you know, way back origins of American culture, you know, that are so rooted in Puritanism and in some uh, really ideas about sex and women that are um, just so difficult to budge and have been around forever. So do you think it, because we're at this point where same-sex marriage is accepted now by the majority of America, but I, perhaps because it's associated with men and not women, is it the second-class nature of women that keeps something like abortion not on that kind of normal level? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I think abortion is... It's a node where um, sex and death and politics and religion and sexism and gender and, you know, race and class all converge. Yeah. And it's um, such a, a tool for maintaining the second class uh, status of women, too. So fictional narratives that present either the truths of second-class life or present women as first-class life, is, is this enough to uh, change the tide? Not on its own, but I think in combination with a lot of other work that is being done, um, you know, in the arts and crucially in politics, you know, I think that it is... It's, it's a key part of all of that. Well, on an inconclusive set of hope uh, and the promise that I shall never, ever mangle a chapter <laughs> title ever again that is body in any sense. Merit, thank you so much and thank you for your great humor in my gaff. Thank you. Thank you so much for such great questions. <laughs>